And now uh, let's read together from Isaiah chapter 65, 17 to 25. New heavens and a new earth. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought of, will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Lisa, and good morning, church. Uh, it's very good to be with you as we continue uh, this morning in our question series. One of, uh, I should say, you may have uh, encountered uh, a puzzle like this before. You may not have. Uh, but the idea with this puzzle is to take those pieces, those wooden blocks, and to make a shape with them. Now, you might uh, know, uh, or guess at least, that the correct, in inverted commas, answer is a cube. You, you can make a cube out of those pieces. Uh, but it turns out that that is not the only thing you can make from those pieces. There are, in fact, lots of different combinations. I, I don't know why there's so many crosses. I can only assume that some of the pieces just lend themselves to that shape. But uh, I, I, I sort of show that to you because... With this puzzle, yes, there's a way of putting it together, but there's actually lots of different ways that you could put it together that kind of look like something. And this morning, we're going to be trying to put together a puzzle. It's not a puzzle of blocks, it's a puzzle of verses. Now, that might sound a bit disrespectful, but when it comes to looking at the subject of the end times, that is not the new heavens and the new earth, but the end times, the time on this earth leading up to the new heavens and the new earth, as we look at what the Bible has to say about the end times, there are verses in Old Testament prophecy, there's verses on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels, uh, there's verses in Paul, there's verses in Peter, and there's verses in James, and, and of course, there's the book of Revelation. This incredible book with visions that John receives from God about all sorts of things. And when we try and kind of put all of those things together, it's a little bit like doing one of these puzzles. 
it's not obvious how they should all fit together. And so, uh, this is one area where believers who hold just about everything else in common, what you might say the core things of the gospel, disagree, they put the puzzle different, together differently. And so what we're looking at this morning is not at all a core gospel issue. Uh, it's not something that you have to get this way or that way, otherwise you're in trouble or something like that. Um, now, you might think, well, why are we bothering then? Well, because someone asked a question, so, you know. Uh, but also because uh, it's, there are lots of verses. I mean, there's a whole book, the book of Revelation, and we want to have some idea of what that's saying. We want to have some idea of what, why God has told us this. We want to have some sense uh, of what God means. But I also want you to be equipped, church, so that when you bump into these conversations, they're not unsettling for you or disturbing for you or you think, oh, I don't understand any of this. Now, that may not be you, but that could be you and, and today, so I want to equip you for that. But most of all, I want you to leave with a sense of confidence in our God uh, and what He says. And so what we're going to do today is I'm going to take you through four common ways of putting the puzzle together. Four common ways of putting the puzzle together and then we're going to look at the problems with all those four ways of putting the puzzle together and then we'll come to some sort of uh, hopefully helpful conclusion. One of the key concepts in putting this puzzle together is in Revelation 20. So we need to turn to Revelation 20. If you've got the Bible there, uh, I would encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 20. It's going to be up on the screen as well. Um, but just to get our heads in gear as we're coming into this passage, in, in Revelation 19 and the relationship between 19 and 20 is debated. Of course, everything is debated in Revelation. But um, Je Jesus has just come down and he's defeated Satan. Right, and then we get Revelation 20. In 21 and 22 is the new heavens and the new earth. So we're right near the end. And this is what Revelation 20 says. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the, dev the, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw into the, the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years." When the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from his prison 
and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In, a, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who, had de- who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so you see there this thousand years. It's mentioned a number of times. A thousand years. A thousand. This is what we call, well, everyone calls a millennium. A thousand years, millennium. And the, your understanding of how the verses in the rest of the Bible fit with this particular ch- chapter or this section kind of dictates how you put the pieces of the puzzle together. It's a core concept, and so we're going to look at various theories, the four, four main various theories of the millennium. Uh, there will be a test. We're going to shut the doors, and uh, if you don't pass, you have to sit through it again. No, that's not right. There's going to be a lot of detail. I'm about to hit you, uh, not physically, um, with a whole lot of information. Um, but again, as I say, this is to help us to understand uh, how people put the Bible together so we're not unsettled. Here's the first one. There's going to be pictures. Boring pictures, but pictures nonetheless. Uh, this is called historical premillennialism. The pre in the millennium uh, answers the question does Jesus come before the millennium starts or after the millennium starts? Uh, this one is pre. The next one will be pre as well. Uh, it's called historical premillennialism because it's been around since the church fathers, the second or third century AD. Uh, now, what do they believe? They believe that here we are, the church age, this is us, we're living, uh, telling people the gospel, lots of people are coming to faith. At some point in time, there will be a great apostasy, uh, that is, lots of people turning away from Christ, and then there will be a time of tribulation, and there will be an antichrist, which is in 2 Thessalonians 2, or 4, I can't remember, 2 Thessalonians 2, I think. Um, Now, in order to, uh, one, sorry, I should say, one of the things, uh, the questions all of these theories try to answer is how do you read Revelation? In particular, how do you read uh, chapter 4? So up to chapter 3, it's the letters to the churches, which most of us like to read, at least we understand what they're saying, and then chapter 4, all the visions start and it starts to get complicated, right? So what do you do with all that stuff in 4 to 19? One view is to say, well, that was all historical, it's talking about stuff that happened in the past to the churches that, this was, that Revelation was written to, uh, and it doesn't really have a whole lot to say to us. That's one view. Another view is uh, the events that are predicted in those chapters are things that, the sorts of things that will happen until Jesus comes back, though there will be an ultimate or sort of a primary fulfilment of those things uh, closer to the time. That's what this view says. There will be, these things happen uh, here, but when we get to the tribulation, all the all the nasty things that are predicted in, in Revelation 4 to 19 will come in full, including uh, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Uh, and then the final view is that, uh, which is, goes with the next one, says that Revelation 4 to 19 is actually a sequence of events that will play out in time in history. Uh, anyway, so that's the tribulation. There will be a tribulation and then Jesus will come back 
Uh, the rapture, that is, we will meet him, go up, meet him in the air, come down with him, that, that is, we being all the believers who are dead and alive at the time when Jesus comes back, and then we will reign with him on the earth for a thousand years, probably a literal thousand years, this view takes prophecy quite literally. At the end of that, Satan will be loosed, uh, but he'll be easily defeated, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Isaiah 65, that Lisa read for us, refers to this period. You will have noticed that in Isaiah 65, it sounds really good, and yet it doesn't quite sound like the new heavens and the new earth, because it talks about people still dying. Uh, one of our questions was about, is that possible? Well, yes, that is a possible interpretation of Isaiah 65. Now, one of the other things that happens in the millennium, according to this view, is that uh, lots of Jews are converted, uh, the temple is rebuilt, some would say, and the sacrifices are restarted. That is based on Zechariah 14, which they take quite literally and does uh, seem to imply that that's what will happen. Uh, it talks about a future kingdom where that happens. You can go up, go and look at Zechariah 14 later on, if you'd like. Uh, as I say, Satan, Satan is loosed, Jesus comes back, eternal life. So, there you go. That's how one group puts that together. That's how they fit the puzzle pieces. The second is similar. Can you tell the difference? No. There you go. Now you can see exactly what's going on. Um, so, here's the first one. This is the second one. You can see that the difference is all here. The, the, mo mostly here. The... the, the, the once you get to the millennium, it's basically all the same. Um, in this view, which is called dispensational premillennialism, we won't, don't worry too much why, doesn't matter at this point in time, uh, there is, at this point in time, this is a church age, and then at some point in time in the future, the rapture happens. Now, this is uh, the view that you might have bumped into in things like Left Behind, if you've read the books or you've watched the movies. So, suddenly, all of a sudden, without any warning, without any notice, uh, the dead... Uh, sorry, in Christ, yes, the believers in Christ are raised up and meet Jesus in the air, and so do the, the, the believers who are alive, they meet Him in the air. That's why in the movie, I believe, I haven't watched it, um, you know, there's a, there's a pilot who's sitting there flying the plane happily and suddenly, boof, he's gone, right? That, that's, and cars drive, you know, drivers and go, and so everyone just meets Christ in the air, and they stay with Christ during this seven years of tribulation, and for this view, uh, Revelation 4 to 19 fits all in here. And it just plays out sequentially. All the terrible, terrible things. And part of the reason they believe, to their credit, I think, that the church is taken away and doesn't, is because uh, their view is that Christ would not make His church go through this terrible tribulation. Now, we had a question about whether that's true or not. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, although I can't entirely answer the question, as you'll see. Uh, nevertheless, uh, once that seven years is over, uh, the millennium starts, and then it's the same as the other one. The only other difference here is that the Jews turn to Christ, and lots of other people turn to Christ during this time of tribulation. Uh, there you go. That's another way of putting the puzzle together. Uh, it, both of those views that we've just seen make it really easy to understand how uh, Revelation 20 fit, don't they? That, whoops, I went ahead. Um, both of those views make it really easy. Jesus uh, reigns on earth for a thousand years, exactly as it says in Revelation 20, Satan is loosed, exactly as it says, Jesus wins, and then eternal life. So, 
that's uh, their, their two views. Now, the next two are not so easy, to put it mildly, uh, to fit with Revelation 20. So here's this one. This one's called post-millennialism. Post because Christ comes after the millennium, which is, not a, which is taken not literally, so it's not a literal thousand years, it's just a, period of, a long period of time. And here is the church age, this is uh, the present age, this is where we are now, and the view is that the world will just keep getting better and better and better and better, and then Jesus will come back. Now, if we just read Revelation 20. Now, you might think, how in the world? Like, how did they come to that conclusion from Revelation 20? Well, it's not really based on Revelation 20. Uh, they would say that this is this world that's coming better and better and better. That's what Isaiah 65 refers to. And uh, the reason the world gets better and better and better is because they have a strong... They take the promises that the church will grow and succeed, if you like very, very seriously, and so they, they believe that the church will grow and grow and grow and grow, and over time, more and more and more and more and more people across the world, a greater proportion of the po population will believe in Jesus, and because they believe in Jesus, Jesus' rule will come, become a reality in the world, not that Jesus will come down physically, but his, through His people it will become a reality, and so the world will get better, and then Jesus will just come back. So they don't inter anticipate terrible times before the end at all. Now, this is probably the, the one most people have never heard of. It's somewhat unusual, and yet there is a church in the Brisbane area, maybe even two churches, because someone told me about another one after the first service, uh, who are Bible-believing. They, they would teach the same sorts of things that we teach week in, week out. They believe the Gospel, and yet this, they're, they're convinced that this is what's going to happen. Uh, Don Carson, in talking about this, points out that uh, this view tends to prevail and be popular when things are going really well in the church. I don't know if that counts for now, but anyway, that's... And then when things are going poorly in the church, uh, this type of view where everything's going to get terrible tends to, <laughs> tends to prevail. Anyway, uh, so that's one post-millennial view. The next one is also kind of post-millennial, but it's called amillennial because it's kind of like a meaning no millennium, but that's not true. There is a millennium. It's just the whole time between when Christ first came and when Christ comes again. And all of that time is viewed as the millennium. Now, you might say, well, in, in, in that version and in the previous one, in what sense is Satan bound? Because remember, we read that in Reve uh, Revelation 20. Uh, Satan is bound to keep him from deceiving the nations. So how is... Where, where is Satan bound in this view, if, that's, if this is a millennium? Well, uh, do you, re you might recall that in uh, the Gospels, at one point, as Jesus is casting out demons, someone comes to Jesus, or not someone, someone's come to Jesus and they say, hey, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan or Beelzebub. And Jesus kind of goes, no, <laughs> that's not what... But listen to what he says. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. And so Jesus is saying, look, the reason I cast out demons is because actually I bound Satan. At least in some sense, that's true, right? That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. And so this view, uh, this view and the previous one uh, 
hold that Satan is bound at this point in time and that that's why the gospel is going out. When it says in Revelation 20 that the dead are raised and rule with Christ, or it actually says literally that the dead come to life and rule with Christ, um, this view argues that that means, as we said just a moment ago with Stella, uh, when she died, she went to be with Christ, so she has life in that sense, She's, she's still with Christ and she rules with Him. Uh, by the way, next week we're going to be looking at heaven and hell, if you don't get enough of this kind of stuff this week. Um, but we, all the end time stuff will be gone, we'll just think about what heaven and hell is. Um, so, at the end, Jesus, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, the dead in Christ and the, dead, the uh, unrighteous dead will be raised to, be, to judgment and the the, the, those who have trusted in Christ will, will go to eternal life and those who have not trusted in Christ will go to eternal death, as it says. So, that's aim millennialism, another way to put the puzzle together. You, you can see that there's uh, some variation in how people have put all the pieces together. Uh, You've probably bumped into some of these or most of these or maybe you've never really thought about it before but you will if you hang around Christian circles or if you read your Bible, you'll bump into this stuff and and this is how people have tried to answer the questions, how do I put it together? What I want to do now though is having given you those views, um, I want to show you that they all have problems. None of them hold together completely. None of them can answer all the questions. So, for example, if we go back to the first one, uh, sorry, that one, if we go back to the first one, uh, there's a resurrection here of the righteous, of of the followers of Jesus, and there's a resurrection here of those who haven't. That's exactly what... um, Revelation 20 says, but then how do you square that with a verse like this? Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. It's hard to escape from that passage, Jesus speaking, Um, It's hard to escape from that passage that the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous happen at exactly the same time. And yet, here, they happen at least a thousand years apart. So, how do you reconcile that? Add to that uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where where Paul says, uh, listen, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And the reason it must, as he says there, do that, is because uh, a perishable person can't live in an imperishable kingdom. That's his argument there. Well, if we go to, the, to here, the dead are raised, 
in Christ, are raised here, and then they live on the earth, imperishable, while the world itself has not been renewed yet, while there's still people, according to, if you take uh, Isaiah 65 as indicating this time, um, where people are still having babies and people are still dying, they're the ones presumably who were born in this period, but how does that work when there's people who are immortal already at that point? Do you see that it's just, it just is hard to work out how that works? Now, it's actually, I think, even harder for, I think I have it here, the dispensational premillennialism, because here you have three resurrections, one here, one here, and then one here as well. So it's that just, you have to kind of work out how that works with uh, verses like John 8, uh, John 5. Uh, they, of course, have answers to that. I mean, I don't want to imply that there's no answers. I just don't have time to go through all the nitty-gritty here. Um, one of their answers, probably the most convincing way of dealing with that problem, uh, if you go to the Old Testament and look at some of the prophecies of Jesus, you'll notice that sometimes there's a prophecy about Jesus uh, where it talks about all the things he's going to do, but he's only, in his first coming, he only did some of them, right? So he comes and he dies for our sins and, and sort of lives on earth, but he doesn't bring in a totally new world. He's, we now know that he's going to do that at his second coming. But when you read the prophecy in a place like Isaiah 11, you can go read that. When you, when you read that, it seems like it says it all happens at the same time. It, it's something that's called prophetic foreshortening. The prophets would prophesy a whole lot of stuff that sounds like it all happens at the same time, but actually it's going to happen over an extended period of time. It's a bit like... Um, if you stand on a mountain and you look down the mountain range, there'll be, all the mountains will kind of look close together, but if you come round to the side of the mountain range, you'll see that there's actually quite a distance in between them. And, and that's kind of what the prophets did, a prophetic foreshortening. Um, and so the people who hold to this view say, well, and the other premillennial view say, well, that's what's happening in John 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15 and so on. It's just that they're going to happen over a long period of time, but they're talked about as if it's all going to happen in the same place. Oh, that may be, but sometimes it's hard to see that that's what's going on. And we don't know, just like the people in the Old Testament didn't know when they first heard the prophecy whether it was going to happen over a short or a long period of time. You can't tell until you've been there. The other problem I would say with uh, this view and the other one that talks about the temple being rebuilt and sacrifices restarting, is that if you go and read Hebrews chapter 9, it is very, very clear that all of the Old Testament sacrifices and temple and all that stuff was a shadow of the true thing to come, that is, the shadow of Christ. The sacrifices were appointed to Christ and the temple was a pointer to the church being the temple of God. They're all, they're all shadows, they're pointing forward. And so, to think that at the end, God's going to kind of go back to that, go back to the shadow when the reality already, has already come in Christ, uh, I think actually shows that you have to take some of the Old Testament prophecies, not literally, but spiritually. You have to, because 
God is, Zechariah, what did I say, 14, God is not going to reinstate the temple. He said that that was a shadow of the things to come. It's not what's coming. Christ is what was coming. Uh, Now, the other problem, uh, I'm afraid, in terms of the dispensational premillennial view is this idea that we are raptured and hang around with Christ for seven years or so and then come back down. That is this idea, the left behind idea that we all just, there's a whole lot of believers that just disappear. Uh, There are two verses that this, or a couple of verses that this hinges on. Let me just read them for you. For the Lord himself, you might have heard this before, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now you can see, in fairness to them, you can see how uh, those verses make you think, yeah, okay, we're, the dead in Christ were raised, uh, the, those who are alive, we're going to meet Christ in the air. Now I don't know, they, think, they say this is secret, I don't know what they do, because I've, I've just never found it, what they do with the trumpet, unless it's a very quiet trumpet or something, I'm not sure, but they, they must, they're not silly, they, they have an explanation, I just don't know what it is. Um, Now, the other verse that they base this on is uh, in Matthew. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. So, you see, that's the left behind thing. Um, People are just going about their normal life, doing their thing, and all of a sudden, uh, God will take, uh, according to... 1 Thessalonians, God will take his people away and what is left is the, the unrighteous. The problem with the, the, this particular view is that actually those verses, I don't think, can sustain that understanding because in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus is saying, when I come, when the Son of Man comes, it'll be like the flood. Now, what happened at the flood? People were just eating and drinking and living happily away, um, thinking Noah was stupid for building an ark. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, the rains start and they get taken away. That's the language of Jesus in a few verses earlier in Matthew 24. They are taken away. And so, when Jesus says uh, people will be taken away, what he means is they'll be taken away for judgment. Just as in Noah's day, the people taken away were those who were being judged. So it is when the Son of Man comes, those who are being taken away are those who are being judged by Jesus. The other reason I don't think you can do this is, uh, have this idea of rapture, is um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, when it said, uh, they will meet the Lord in the air, meet the Lord in the air, uh, that's a little phrase, uh, two words in Greek, and and it means uh, to go out to meet someone to bring them back in to where you were. So, uh, it's only used, that phrase is only used two other times in the New Testament. Um, It's used when a delegation goes out uh, to meet Paul uh, in Acts 28. They go out to meet Paul and bring him back to Rome because he's heading to Rome. It also, I think, kind of more... What's the word? can't think of the word. Anyway, relevantly, (laughs) uh, is in Matthew 20, 
5, Jesus tells a parable, you might remember it, of the ten virgins who have to be ready for the bridegroom. Five of them aren't, but the five who are, they go out to meet, same phrase, the bridegroom to bring him back to the wedding feast. Uh, And so it would seem that when we meet Christ in the air, uh, it, it will be to come back down to earth with him, to bring him down. Um, not to hang out for, for seven or so years uh, in heaven with him. But again, like that's just putting the puzzle pieces together. Now, there are problems not just for those two views, but for post-millennialism and amillennialism. Um, where are we? Sorry. Post-millennialism, as I've said, the big problem is it doesn't, but neither of those views fit particularly well with Revelation 20. Like you really have to work hard to <laughs> say the millennium is now and, and not sometime in the future. Uh, there are ways of exegeting that, and particularly because Revelation is a book of uh, visions, but it's, you have to work hard and it's not the natural reading of the text. When you read Revelation 20, it sounds awfully like there's going to be a thousand-year rule on earth. I mean, that's what it sounds like. I think the biggest problem for post-millennialism is that it doesn't seem to fit with what's happening in our world, right? <laughs> yes, the church did grow for a time, but that, and that's happening in parts of the world, but it's not happening all over the world. Um, and there's no place for Revelation 4 to 19, as I said earlier, in, in the future. All of that has to be in the past for the churches that it was written to originally. And that doesn't seem to fit with what Revelation 4 to 19 is saying. So it just doesn't deal with Revelation very well, I think, post-millennialism. There are problems for amillennialism, and that's partly why we read Isaiah 65. You see, because how does that fit? It, it sounds like the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, it starts that way. In verse 17, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And you think, oh, cool, this is, this is heaven. But then you get to verse 20. Never again will there be in it, that is, this new whatever God is creating, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child, and the one who fails to reach a hundred, we considered accursed. So, <laughs> how does that work, do you see? How, how can you, you can't have death in the new heavens and the new earth. We're imperishable. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. And so, people say, well, uh, a millennials will say, well, it, that's because Isaiah is doing his best to describe a new world uh, in the terms that the people understood. You know, they didn't really understand a world where you live forever. And so he has to kind of put it in that way. Well, the problem with that is that if you go back to Isaiah 26, Isaiah talks about, or seems to at least, talk about eternal life. So why didn't he, if, if he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth where there is eternal life, why didn't he just put that in Isaiah 65? The other problem, I think, for amillennialism is that the prophecies in, or the visions in Revelation 4 to 19 sound pretty bad. And even if they're just a pattern of what's happening until it gets to the worst, when Satan is released, even if that's what you think, 
you have to ask the question, in what sense is Satan bound and kept from deceiving the nations now and for the last 2,000 years? Right? That's, what, that's, that's what it says there. He's, he's bound to keep him from deceiving the nations until the thousand years were ended. That's what Revelation 20 says. Well, in what sense is... I mean, you, look, you tell me, you look at the last 2,000 years, has Satan been unable to deceive the nations that entire time? That's not what it looks like to me. Yeah, the gospel is progressing, and yes, uh, maybe it's better than it was before Jesus came, but I don't even know if that's the case. And so to argue that this is the time where Satan is bound and he cannot deceive is just really difficult. And so, do you, do you see they all have problems? I would argue they all have fairly significant problems. Now, if you were to ask me which one do I lean towards, I lean towards amillennialism and that is only because amillennialism tends to interpret Revelation on the basis of the verses in the rest of the New Testament rather than the other way around. Like you have to kind of almost pick where you start. Do you start with the rest of the New Testament and read Revelation or do you read Revelation and then read the rest of the Bible? And I, that's what I tend to do. But there's problems. And you know what? I, <laughs> when we get to heaven, you, you're welcome to come and chat to me about this when we get there. Um, I reckon it'll be completely different to all of those views. It wouldn't surprise me in the least, right? And I say that partly because when Jesus came to the earth, nobody had any idea what he was going to do, did they? They had all the prophecies. And Jesus did fulfill those prophecies. But you only kind of see that in hindsight, and in fact, even Jesus had to, you know, walk with the guys along the road to Emmaus and explain to them how he fulfilled the prophecies. I mean, he said to his disciples so many times, you know, I have to go to Jerusalem and, and be crucified. No, no, Jesus, you don't, you don't have to do that. And yet, you go back into the Old Testament and you read Isaiah's servant songs, you know, on him our afflictions were laid and so on like it's so obvious it's so obvious that the son of man this messiah had to die it's so obvious but they didn't get it they didn't see it there's all sorts of reasons they didn't see it but the point is the prophecies that god gives us i would argue are actually deliberately obscure now i'm not being insulting to god by saying that i i think he can be clear when he wants to be clear, obviously. But he is deliberately as cool. I mean, just think back to what I said a few moments ago about prophetic foreshortening, where he puts a whole lot of events in one prophecy, but actually they happen over a long period of time. When he does that, he doesn't expect you to know that that's happening. You can't know. It's, it's like impossible for you to actually understand that until it happens. Why does he do that? This is a question I don't see anyone asking. Why does God communicate future events to us in this manner? Why does he make prophecies obscure? Why does our main text on the future of the world happen to come in the form of weird, crazy visions, right? Why not just Paul writing, and then this will happen, 
and then that will happen, and then this will happen, and then that will, right? That would be so clear. We would know exactly what was coming. We would know exactly what was, right? But he doesn't. God deliberately gives it to us in a vague way. Now, it's not that he's leaving himself room, right? God doesn't need to leave himself room to kind of, you know, I need a bit of wiggle room to work through the various things that might come up. That's not what's going on. He, he could give it to us clearly, but he doesn't. Why? Why? Well, I think in part the reason why to Revelation as the final book in the Bible to the book that talks about the suffering of Christians is because actually a suffering Christian doesn't need a, a dot points of what's going to happen. The suffering Christian needs to hear that the beast that they're suffering under, the, the terrible, awful, evil persecution that they're suffering is going to be undone by a majestic rider on a white horse, right? That, like, you need something that engages your emotions when you're suffering terrible evil, not just words on a page. And, and Revelation should grab your imagination. But I think the other reason why is because actually it's not God's intention for us to work out all the details. It's not God's intention for us to work out all the details. He doesn't really want us to have worked it all out. If He did, He would have given it to us in a form that we could do that. What He wants us to focus on are the plain things and the main things. And friends, all the views that I show you agree on the plain and the main things. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? <laughs> my clicker doesn't change my page. Um, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the promises, the promise we are looking forward, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless blameless and at peace with him. You see, what do we know? What does God want us to absolutely know? He is coming again. He is coming again and he will bring about a new heavens and a new earth, earth where righteousness dwells. That is a place where there is no more sin and no more death and no more mourning and no more pain where Satan has been dealt with and he is done forever. And he wants us to know that thing, to know that promise when it looks like Satan is winning, when it looks like the world is going to pot, when it looks like Christians and the church are being crushed and defeated and broken. He wants us to know those things when we ourselves are uncertain and when we suffer. And he wants us to stick with Jesus no matter what happens because we know that he is coming again. He wants us to be ready for his return. And how are we ready? 
that we are found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. And, and, and you know, friends, don't you, that you, we can't do that. This is not saying, make sure you're a really good person on the day Jesus comes back, otherwise you're in trouble. No. <laughs> we know how to be ready. We know how to be ready because we have a Saviour, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to make us spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. And as we entrust ourselves to God, to our Saviour Jesus, we are ready for His return. Jesus is saying to us, look, church, if the world descends into terrible tribulation and terrible trials, don't give up. Keep trusting me. If the church is being crushed and all manner of things are happening and a, and a man of lawlessness, an antichrist, rises up and draws many to him, don't, don't run away. Stick with me because in the end, I am going to win. I am going to conquer. I am in control. I will bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Just be ready for my return. Keep trusting me. And that's what Jesus wants us to know. I'm not saying you can't talk about all the other details. Some people love this stuff. That's fine. That's fine. This is you know, this your hobby. That's fine. That's great. As long as we know the core things, Jesus is coming again. He will win. So keep trusting him so you're ready for his return. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you have told us what is to come. And though we cannot work out all the details and we don't know all the ups and downs, we do know that Jesus will return. Satan will be defeated and all those who have, in, who have trusted in Jesus will live with him forever in pure joy and delight and happiness. That there will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain. And we will live with you and we will know you and we will be loved by you. Father, what a promise to hold on to. Help us to hold on to you, even as you hold on to us, no matter what comes. Help us to have confidence in Christ that he has won and will win the victory. Thank you so much for your Son, Jesus, who made us spotless, blameless, and at peace with you so that we might look forward to his glorious return, whatever that looks like, that we might look forward to it and speed its coming. We pray that you would help us to live for you in this day to the glory of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.